0: Uh, let me encourage you to take your Bible and to turn with me in it to Paul's epistle to the Galatians and the third chapter. And while you're turning there, just simply would like to say that one of the privileges that accompanies the responsibility of ministering the Word of God in these Sunday evenings is the opportunity to select the hymns that we sing on Sunday evening. And the last one that we've sung this evening thus far, uh, is a selection from the Psalter. It's the 45th Psalm, and it's always a blessing to be able to sing back to God the very words of God as we have them from the psalmist. My heart doth overflow. Okay, Galatians chapter 3. Please attend to the reading of God's Word as we read verses 15 through 21. Hear the word of the true and living God. Paul writes and says in verse 15, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified or confirmed. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring or to his seed. It does not say to offsprings or seeds, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring or seed, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham By a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring, the seed, should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. Let's ask for God's ministry, God's blessing upon the ministry of his word. Let us pray. O Lord, as we come now to... Open up and apply the ministry of this your precious word, Father. I am so conscious that left to myself, I am unable to mark your word aright, unable, Father, to open up your word in a way that is profitable to these your precious people. And so, I ask, O Lord, that you would work in our hearts this night that you would do what no mere human voice can accomplish, namely to drive your word home to all of our hearts with power. And Father, we know that you're pleased to do that, especially in the ministry of the word. And so, Father, I pray that you would come in your spirit upon preacher and people alike. And Lord, may the blessing of your word take root in our hearts to form and conform us more by the norm of Holy Scripture to your own blessed image. We ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. From the very beginning of our study of Paul's epistle to the Galatians, we have observed repeatedly that he begins it with a sense of urgency born out of the constraint of a pastoral concern which he has for these fledgling churches in the region of Galatia and the danger which now threatens them. And he launches at the very beginning of the epistle into an immediate defense of his apostolic credentials as well as his apostolic gospel. And in the course of this offense, defense, we have seen that the apostle has had to speak very sharply, very reprovingly, and very severely to these Galatian believers. They were in serious peril of being seduced by the subtleties of these false brethren whom are identified for us as Judaizers, certain men From James. And these men were seeking to turn the Galatians away from Christ and back to the entire Mosaic economy. And these men were seeking to undermine the true gospel by insisting that faith in Jesus Christ was not enough, was not sufficient in order for them to be put right. With God, and what when news of their insidious work then reached the ears of the Apostle Paul, he writes, takes up pen and writes to send them this letter, expressing their astonishment. He says, I am astonished, I am amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one. And so he begins this epistle with no commendation, which was characteristic of the Apostle Paul in his other epistles, but he immediately begins by scolding them, chastising them, and indeed upbraiding them. And so we've seen how he addresses them. For example, in chapter 3 and verse one, "O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, he says? Who has cast this spell over you? Who has spooked you, he's saying? Who has deceived you? Who has suckered you into such nonsense? And so he continues this pastoral corrective in chapter 5 and verse 2. He says, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He will not profit you. Then he says there in verse 7, you were running well. Who has hindered you from obeying the truth? So Paul has had to speak some very hard things to these Christians in Galatia. And the issue that he's addressing is not an intramural lesson. It's not an in-house theological dispute, as it were. For at stake was nothing less than the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of his gospel. But even more particularly and urgently... What was at stake for these Galatian believers was their own eternal salvation. And he tells them in no uncertain terms in chapter 5 and verse 2, If you become circumcised, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And so then Paul has been forced to speak rather stridently to these Galatians. And the very first word of chapter 3 and verse 15 underscores and reminds us then that Paul never forgets for a moment that these men and women to whom he was writing were nonetheless his brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he addresses them On that level. He never forgets that. And interwoven throughout these six chapters of the epistle to the Galatians. In at least nine places. In at least nine places. He addresses these foolish Galatians. As his brothers and sisters in Christ. He was bound to them in the mutual union of the son of God. He together with them recognizes that they were all part of the family of God and they were before they were anything else kindred of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, while he is engaging in theological controversy and while he is speaking some hard, difficult things to them, he is doing so as their brother. In the Lord Jesus Christ. And he never lets go of his heart affection from these men and women. Hence, he does not engage them from the distance of someone who is living in an ivory tower, as it were, pontificating to them. But views these dear people as his brethren. And the good of their never dying souls then is hanging in the balance. And so in some nine places, he addresses them in terms of endearment as part of the family of God. So that even while he is severely chastising them, they might see and understand that he is pleading with them as their brother in Christ. And see that as such, he loves them. So Paul was their father in the gospel according to the way which he addresses them in verse 19 of chapter 4. He addresses them as my little children. And it was under his ministry that these churches in Galatia had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am sure that his Paul's serves as an example and a model in terms of the method by which he engages them so directly and so lovingly. And then, as the epistle unfolds, he is carefully, repeatedly reminding them that they are his brethren in Christ, that to be sure, ought always to be the context of Christian engagement that we ought to have as brothers and sisters in Christ with one another. Because before anything else, before he was an apostle for them, he was a brother to them in Christ. And this example ought to be the proper model and context out of which you and I are to have dealings with one another. Now what Paul does then in verses, and this in the second place, that Paul does in these verses, verses 15 through 21, is to continue to drive home to the Galatians this other folly of adding to faith in Jesus Christ. Hence the title of the sermon, No Additions to Christ. And the folly of returning to or of looking back to the old covenant of adding Moses to Christ, of surrendering to circumcision. And as we shall see later on in chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, of returning to what he calls the weak and the beggarly elements of observing months and days and seasons and years. They were turning back to the whole Mosaic economy, So they were going back to that and moving away from Christ. And from the authority of Holy Scripture, over and over again, repeatedly, Paul seeks to persuade them against the error of the Judaizers. He, he does it, for example, from verse 6. He pleads with him to consider Abraham, who believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He does in verse 10 the same thing in a negative way. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse... For it is written, he says. And then he goes in verse 11. He says, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The righteous, the just, shall live by faith, citing Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. So he brings them time and time again back to the authority of the Word of God. And Paul never moves a fraction of an inch from confidence in trust in simply holding before them the authority of the Word of God. The apostle has such confidence. In God's word, and that He brings them back again and again to Holy Scripture. And, dear people, that is our only infallible and ultimate authority. That is where all of us rest our confidence. What does God say in His word? Regardless of the claims of others, to private spirits, as it were, to visions and revelations and traditions, we take our stand with the apostles and the prophets on the sufficiency of the ultimate authority of the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture, as the confession puts it. Then in the third place, you'll notice in verses 15 and following, Paul continues to pursue and progress his argument that God's one and only means by which he brings hell-deserving sinners into a right and saving relationship with himself is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul does this at least in three ways in verses 15 through 21. First of all, he reminds them that God's covenant with Abraham was an unchanging or an immutable covenant. The nature of that covenant is that it is unchanging. And then, secondly, he calls attention to the historical priority. Of God's covenant with Abraham and then thirdly he underscores God's gracious hand in the direct administration of his covenant with Abraham now to be sure the heart of God's gracious covenant with Abraham is summed up in the words of God I will be your God and you shall be my people and God justified Abraham declared him to be righteous as we saw in verse 6 when he believed in God. He was brought into the scope of that particular covenant relationship by believing and not by working. And so in verse 15, Paul underscores the unchanging, the immutable nature of God's covenantal relationship with Abraham. And Paul draws an example, you'll notice, from common everyday life. Verse 15, to give a human example, he says, Brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls or adds to it once it has been ratified or confirmed. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring or his seed. It does not say unto offsprings, plural, Referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, your seed singular, which is Christ. Now, what is Paul's whole point in that particular example? Well, it's simply this. Permit me, if you would, to illustrate by everyday example. Think of the agreements that people make with one another. When people make an agreement, that is, when they enter into a covenant with one another, that agreement or covenant is binding on both parties. It is duly established. And once the agreement is made, then one party cannot come along and say, I want to change or alter the terms of the covenant." And you will notice that in the context of the covenant that God has made with Abraham, it was made not only with him, but also to his offspring, to his seed. Meaning one person there who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning that in that promise and in prospect, God had in mind not only Abraham, but Christ and all of his seed. And we learn from verse 29 of this chapter that if you belong to Christ, you're what? You're then Abraham's offspring. You're Abraham's seed by virtue of believing in Christ. And therefore you're heirs according to the promise. And so when he is speaking of Christ, he is referring to all of those who are in union With the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's argument is that God has made an agreement. A solemn, perpetual, binding agreement. And God has not changed his mind. He has not altered the terms of that covenant. God hasn't changed or altered the conditions, the requirements of that arrangement. And that is because God himself... Is unchanging. God hasn't changed the terms of the covenant or the way by which one enters into this covenantal relationship with Him. And so Paul is arguing there that this unchanging nature or character of His covenant with Abraham and His seed it is because God Himself is an unchanging God, immutable in His own character or nature. And as God dealt with Abraham, so he deals with all who are included as Abraham's offspring or seed. That is, all who are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And God deals with them on the basis of believing them. And so Paul argues, beginning with verses 15 and 16, that God's covenant is an unchanging covenant. Then we see... Also under that first under that point in the second place that Paul underscores the historical priority ...of God's covenant with Abraham. Verse 17. This is what I mean, Paul says. The law which came 430 years afterward... ...does not annul, he argues, a a covenant previously ratified by God... ...so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance, that is, the salvation, he is arguing... ...becomes ours by means of our being put right with God... Comes by the law, he says, then it no longer comes by promise. But, as we've seen, God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now then, what Paul is saying, what he's arguing here, is clearly this. These Judaizers had been pressing and seeking to impose upon the Galatians the requirements of the Mosaic economy. But the law wasn't given, he says, until 430 years after God's covenant of grace with Abraham. In other words, the law is secondary and not primary in Paul's argument. Therefore, the giving of the law cannot set aside, it cannot, in the language of verse 17, annul the covenant that was confirmed or ratified before by God in Christ. Because Paul argues that would make the promise of no effect. That's his argument. It would make the promise made in covenant to Abraham null and void, which he's arguing to the contrary. And so Paul is exhorting the Galatian believers to understand That God's covenant made with Abraham and the giving of the law, what comes first takes priority of that which comes afterward. What comes first is of primary importance over that which comes second. Therefore, God's covenant with Abraham takes priority over the giving of of the law. Now you'll notice Paul underscores this, I think, in a very remarkable way at the end of verse 18 in terms of the tense of the Greek verb that he gives us there. He says, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. And that word for gave, it, it's a perfect tense there. It is something that has transpired that continues to have a lasting effect. Uh, in fact, the very giving there has it, it's a it's a compound verb and it and it's compounded with the word grace. God gave it, and part of the verb means then it was a free gift. Not something that is earned, but something that is a free gift that God gave. And He gave it in per- perpetuity. And it is perpetual. So the perfect tense indicates that God gave it in the past, but it stands true forever. And then Paul has emphasized as well the unchanging nature of that covenant, the historical priority of the covenant of grace. And then thirdly, in the last part of verse 19 here through verse 20, he underscores God's gracious hand in the direct, administration of his covenant with Abraham, the covenant of grace. And it, Paul says, that is the law, was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, it has been suggested to me that there are hundreds, some 300 uh, of interpretations for these particular words of the apostle paul what i'm going to offer to you not infallibly of course but what i understand paul to say and paul to mean here and i'm not going to test your patience this evening by offering you the various comments and the interpretations of others but i do think it's very important to bear in mind the context in which we are giving given these words of the Apostle Paul. Paul has been laboring to impress upon the Galatians the priority, then, of the covenant of grace over and above the Mosaic economy. That is the context. And he has sought to do this in a number of ways. And thirdly, he is exhorting them to consider the gracious hand of God in the direct administration of his covenant with Abraham, the covenant of grace. And he does this by calling their their attention to how the law was administrated. That is, how the law was put into effect that the law that the Judaizers had been impressing upon you by emphasizing the law of Moses, how was that law administered? And Paul tells them, it, the law, was administered not directly, but by a third hand, so to speak. It, that is the law, says Paul, was appointed through angels by the hand of of a mediator, that mediator being Moses. The first martyr of the Christian church, Stephen, tells us in Acts chapter 7 and verse 53 that it came not only through the mediation of angels, but also through Moses. And so in a sense, the law came or was given from a third hand. It came from God, true, through angels by Moses to the people of Israel. Now, this in the fourth place, says Paul, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And so what is Paul's point with that context? And I confess this is not very easy. And I'm sensitive to that, but we must keep in mind at all times in handling this passage, the context. And I think that Paul was saying this, that the law was put into effect by third hand. But God is one, that is God dealt with Abraham face to face. God himself graciously had a direct hand in the mediation of the covenant of grace when he literally cut or made that covenant with Abraham. That is, God came to Abraham personally and directly. And you most may say, but hold on. Christ, Paul says elsewhere, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, Christ is the mediator between God and men. So there is a mediator, but he is the God-man, and he is not remote or distant from us. He is immediate rather than mediate with us. And here, then, is the great foundational priority, then, I think, of the covenant of grace. And God reveals that priority to us by demonstrating his own gracious hand in the direct administration of the covenant. Of grace, And so there are some three things in these verses. There is the unchanging or the immutable nature of the covenant of grace made with Abraham. Then there is secondly the historical priority of God's covenant of grace with Abraham. And, when, and then there is the direct administration of his covenant with Abraham. And so when these three Three realities are combined. Together they underscore the supremacy of the covenant of grace over the law and that that God has with all of us who are in union with his offspring, his son, the Lord Jesus, the seed of Abraham. And then in verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? You can almost imagine These Judaizers responding to Paul by saying, Wait a minute, Paul. What about Moses? What about Moses? You are ignoring him. You are despising the holy law of God. What then is the purpose of the law? Where does the law fit into all of this? Now again, and this in the fifth place, the commentators here, I confess, are quite divided. As to how we're to understand this. In my own view, is not the majority view. But the more I consider this portion of God's word, then I stand to be corrected. But the more I understand this portion of God's word, the more I think that it is the right understanding of Paul's words here. There are most likely two ways in which we can understand what Paul is saying here by his use of the term nomos or law. In the New Testament, Paul uses that word law, nomos, in at least seven different ways. It can mean the Torah, that is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, it can mean price, precisely the 10 words of Moses, the Decalogue. It can mean the whole Old Testament in another sense, or it can mean simply law as a particular principle. And that's at least four different ways it's used in Scripture. And so there are many commentators who argue that what Paul is saying here, what was the purpose then of the law? Its purpose was to convict us of sin, to lead us, as we see in verse 24, as a tutor, as a schoolmaster, as a pedagogue to Christ, to lead us there, to Christ. And the purpose of the law was to humble us and to show us our our need of Christ. And that particular argument makes a lot of sense. And it is, of course, absolutely true, absolutely true. It is one of the great functions of the law to bring us, you and I, face to face with the reality and the heinousness of our sin. As he expresses it in Romans 3 verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Sin becomes transgression when the law of God declares, You shall not do, and contrary to that, you do do. And so if we're thinking of the law in that way, then the law was given as a tutor to lead us to Christ. But I'm not clearly convinced that this is how we're to understand what Paul means in this particular context. Yes, all that I said is true. And I think that that is the truth being taught in uh in other places and not in this particular passage. I think what helps us to understand what Paul is saying here is to remind ourselves of this. What was the problem of the Galatia churches? The problem is is that the Galatian believers were being tempted by the Judaizers to return to the Mosaic ritual of circumcision. And I don't think it was just circumcision, but I think circumcision as representative, in a sense, of the entire Mosaic economy. And as we see in chapter 4, in verses 8 and following, to return to the observance of special days and special months and seasons and years. In other words... What I am saying, the law, the Mosaic economy ceased with the coming of Christ. And we know that the moral law did not cease with the coming of Christ. That the law continues to convict us of sin, of righteousness, and of the judgment to come. It continues to do that. And so God's law continues to function in that way. The coming of Christ did not change that. And so God adds this word. He says, because of transgressions, this elaborate ceremonial and sacrificial system, it served as a preservative to protect God's people till the seed to whom the promise referred should come. In other words, these particular rituals were to differentiate Israel from all the other nations around them And to protect them and preserve them as God's people. And so, in that sense, Allah was a shadow of the good things to come. To use the language of Hebrews 10 and Colossians chapter 2 and verse 17. And once the reality has come, you do not look back or go back to the shadows because the shadow. Is only an anticipation of the reality which it represents or signifies. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, the seed, should come to whom the promise was made. And so I think it's important that we keep all of that in mind. Point is, Paul is making no additions to Christ. No additions to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ has come. And as he said to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Woman, he says, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. It's not the right place, so to speak, but God can be worshipped anywhere. And so I think that Paul is arguing that it's the entire Mosaic economy that he has in mind to them. And Paul is saying to them, do you not see, do you not understand that Christ himself is the goal? He is the end, the telos. He is the whole purpose to which God is pointing in all of biblical revelation And so in that sense, the law here defined, I think, was the entire Mosaic economy, that that was temporary. And that's the way Paul is arguing. The Lord Jesus Christ is the heart of the good news of the gospel, that in him and him alone we are justified before God and reconciled to him. Is this something that you have grasped fully completely as a believer in Christ. In what or in whom this evening are you trusting? Even if you're a member of this particular congregation, I hope that you're not trusting in the membership of this particular assembly. And may God have mercy upon you if this church or any other church is your hope. And God help you also. If your hope is bound up in being a member of a Christian family, even though there are great privileges, spiritual privileges, belonging to such a family. So in closing, I ask you, what is your hope before God? If you were to die this hour and you were to stand before the true and living God in judgment, and God should say to you, Why should I let you enter into my heaven? What would be your hope, your answer be? Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress, as the hymn puts it. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. And so Jesus Christ, Paul is arguing, is God's only sufficient and perfect Savior and perfectly suited to meet the needs of any sinner who stands in need of being reconciled to God. When all is said and done, there is but one door that opens up to the nearer presence and glory of God. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone, anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And at the end, end of the day, the question is have you entered by Christ? Because Christ Himself is the entrance into all the blessedness of what it means to come to know the true and living God. He is God's one and only way to everlasting glory. And my friend, if you are not persuaded of that, then I plead with you not to leave this place this evening until you are. And may God be the one to persuade us all. Amen. Let us pray.